The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, So a bunch of organizations that have offensive missions are getting access to the information that is now being mandatorily collected through this new MIIT database. And so there's a lot of content to visualize and imagine, but the short version is there used to be voluntary disclosure. You used to be able to support the intelligence services if you wanted to. And under the new system, if you're doing uh, research on software vulnerabilities in China, you are unfortunately and de facto supporting those offensive missions, even if you did not intend to. I am Eugenia Lohzegui. Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 19th, 2023. In July 2021, the Chinese government published its Regulations on the Management of Network Product Security Vulnerabilities. These rules require researchers to inform the government of all flaws in code within 48 hours of their discovery, effectively supporting efforts to stockpile software vulnerabilities which can then be used for offensive cyber operations. My two guests recently authored a report on how China manages software vulnerabilities. Dakota Kari is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and a consultant at Stamos Group. Kristen Del Rosso is a public sector field CTO at IT security company Sophos. We talked about how companies have adjusted to China's new rules how their system compares to the U.S. voluntary approach, and the incentives to collect vulnerabilities for offensive operations. It's the Lawfare podcast for October 19th, China's approach to software vulnerabilities reporting. You recently published a report called Sleight of Hand, How China Weaponizes Software Vulnerabilities. And in this report, you describe some of the steps that China has taken in the last few years to collect more software vulnerabilities. So before we dive into some of the regulations that China has put in place to do this, I was hoping maybe you could start by describing the role that software vulnerability reporting mechanisms play in advancing software security, and maybe the different reasons why governments might take an interest in these vulnerabilities. So I think maybe, Kristen, if we could start with you, that would be great. Yeah. So anytime you publish software, whether you intend to have it or not, there will be there will be vulnerabilities in it. Um, and whether you find those or not, and at the speed at which you find those is going to vary. So um, it's important for governments because, you know, you might have software coming out for products that are not really, 
you know, it could be something, some stupid IoT device that don't really have any meaningful security implications, or it could be a software that is used globally that has to do with, you know, very sensitive information, um, handling that stuff. So governments are really interested in making sure that if it is a software that they are using, they want to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities in it that adversaries could exploit to take advantage or, you know, uncover information about them. But also governments have a history of using it offensively so that if they find a vulnerability that hasn't been patched in software, that they potentially then can use that for their own means for intelligence or warfare or whatever it might be. So in in your report, you describe a sort of evolution, right, in how different agencies in China are advancing, constraining regulations on the management of vulnerabilities. And, you know, I think you even point to a decision back in 2017, preventing cybersecurity researchers from traveling to competitions. So I, I was wondering, you know, if, if we take maybe that as a starting point, what is the significance of that? And how does it maybe set the tone for, you know, what comes next? Yeah, I mean, the, the 2017 decision is a really good one. China software security researchers had been a critical part of the like international uh, software security ecosystem. They'd shown up at competitions globally and, and just done very, very well finding vulnerabilities and exploiting them You know, for, for cash and prestige uh, on stage, pwn to own Project Zero. You can go down the list of places and uh, teams from China uh, would typically do very well. And in 2017, the Cyberspace Administration of China and the Ministry of Public Security issued uh, joint regulations that prevented uh, these researchers from going overseas and burning the software vulnerabilities uh, without having first gotten permission from the Ministry of Public Security to do so. They've not apparently provided uh, that authorization to folks uh, because they've stopped showing up for those competitions. And it's around this time that we start seeing um, industry leaders in cybersecurity in China actually voicing the opinion that um, software vulnerabilities are a natural resource that they are they are comparing them to like timber and coal in terms of these like this natural endowment you know to to China and should not be given away uh, freely or even ex, you know exchange for money in foreign markets and so they stay they withhold these researchers from from competing in these international competitions and the attitude publicly becomes kind of like a collect them all or prevent their disclosure you know abroad. Um, so there are uh, software security competitions in China that crop up around this time that kind of replace the mechanism of those foreign competitions. At the same time, China is also trying to get more and more uh, high school and college uh, degree seekers interested in cybersecurity. And so it's a bit of a twofold push. These competitions can can draw attention and inspire young people you know, to try and pursue a career in this field or an adjacent field. Um, and so there, there are two motivations behind that shift in, in attitude. The first being we'd like to collect as many of these as possible, withhold them from other from other people, but also to use those competitions as a way to promote, you know, a cybersecurity degree or education or, or career in that field. And kind of on the on the flip side of that, Kristen, I would be interested in hearing your perspective here about what is the impact on you know, the the ecosystem when there's an entire group of researchers that are, you know, not showing up and, you know, not contributing to the, the back and forth. 
Yeah, it, I think, can hinder a lot of good research because, you know, a lot of, you know, work around vulnerabilities or tracking various threat actors or working on new discoveries, it can't be done in a silo. Uh, cybersecurity is inherently a very connected ecosystem where you, uh, an organization or as an individual researcher, will never have a full visibility into the broader picture of how an attack plays out or the ecosystem of which something is running. And, and so by removing these really talented researchers from global competitions, you are not only reducing the amount of information that you can learn and share, but it's also kind of highlighting um, this wall that China is building again that is keeping their knowledge contained just for them. And it's made it harder for external researchers like us to look at what they're finding and what they're uncovering, uh, where they're at on certain things. Um, so forget the fact that they are not letting people travel, but you know, publicly available data and discoveries that they found on vulnerabilities a few years ago are no longer available online or to access some of these Chinese research sites or vulnerability sites. You now need to have a Chinese phone number and you have to register. You have to access it during Chinese hours. So it's not any longer something that when you think of security, um, cybersecurity and like just like the openness of what we view the internet in the Western world, it's becoming harder to access the same resources and content that researchers in China are finding. And I think that's done purposely, honestly, because like Dakota was saying, they're viewing vulnerabilities as this valuable, valuable resource. And so by pulling it back, it's something that's they want to kind of keep for themselves as the top lines. Um, and, you know, it's going to create a shift in, it's almost like an iron curtain for researchers of there's harder and harder to access and see what's going on behind that wall. So Dakota, you already kind of started discussing this, but this decision in 2017 kind of heralds the way in which then the agencies put out these regulations, right? So let's let's start unpacking those regulations, um, which I think come out in 2021. And, you know, let's start maybe with the basics and, you know, what sort of requirements do they set out and who do they apply to? Yeah, absolutely. So so the regulations are announced in July of 2021, and they go into effect in September of that same year. Um, the regulations are jointly written and published by the Cyberspace Administration of China, um, which is an institution which has actually two names. It is also the CCP Central Committee for uh, Informization that, that is actually a party structure. And so it is known as the CAC uh, as far as the government agency is concerned, but it's also uh, the exact uh, one-to-one replica of the CCP uh, policy body. It's published with the Ministry of Public Security and the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. The regulations are for um, network product providers, so that's hardware or software, or network operators that are doing business in uh, mainland China. And we can pause here on what counts as doing business in mainland China, because it, it is a question for companies that operate there. What counts as doing business? Do you have to have a registered office? Or if your products are sold in China, does, does that count? It's a bit of a gray space and I've not seen any good clarification about, about you know, who qualifies there. So it also applies to organization individuals, though, who are doing research on uh, security research on software. And so if, um, uh, you know, a company, a cybersecurity company or uh, independent researchers find software vulnerabilities in hardware or software products that are available in China, then the regulations also apply to them. And effectively, the regulations prevent the 
free publication of information about software vulnerabilities or proof of concept code, uh, which is used to demonstrate that a vulnerability is in fact vulnerability, the, the regulations stop uh, researchers, cybersecurity companies, et cetera, from publishing that information without having coordinated with the company whose product is vulnerable. That company must also, that company organization must also put out a fix for that vulnerability or a patch before the person who finds it can discuss it publicly. So there's effectively a gag rule until there is a patch available for this vulnerability, regardless of who finds it. And the institution that owns this product, this service, the service, the hardware, software, whatever it is, they are responsible to provide information about that vulnerability to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology uh, within two days of discovering. And so if a company finds it in their own product, it's a two-day deadline. If a researcher finds it in the product, they are meant to share it with that company, but they are also responsible to report it to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology within two days. And then there are enforcement mechanisms for, for folks who violate those regulations. Okay. So I have to say, when I hear this, it just, it, it sounds kind of reasonable, right? Because yeah, don't discuss publicly because you're just going to be putting information about vulnerability out there and it could be exploited. You know, what are what are the stated objectives and then some of the concerns that these regulations stirred? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the stated objectives and then Kristen, you can jump in on the concerns. The stated objectives are to improve product security. They want to make things more secure. And, you know, if you look at the governing bodies that are affiliated with this database in the system or, you know, managed by the MIIT, they include standard setting bodies like uh, China Software Testing Center, other parts of the MIIT as well. Um, and the goal being, the ostensible goal being, if we track these vulnerabilities, we can facilitate uh, more secure products entering the market and track and make sure that those companies are addressing uh, the issues as we know them. But I'll, I'll hand it over to Kristen to elaborate on. Yeah, I think some concerns though are, you know, this mandate to report vulnerabilities, especially within two days, it's unlike anything else that you're seeing in the US in the proposed European legislation. So the difference is in China, they're mandating that you report it directly to the government, where by the way, the body that's regulating and managing it, it managing this, it's like the equivalent of if we had the CIA running our national vulnerability database, not CISA. So it's because the problem with this is the people who are the where the vulnerabilities are being reported to there is a past history of these organizations not only falsifying reported vulnerability numbers, but also essentially holding, cherry picking top vulnerabilities to hand off to Chinese APT groups. But on top of that concern of are there going to be a whole platter of new hot leads reserved and not published that could potentially be funneled for offensive purposes by an adversary. Um, but if you want to compare it to legislation proposals that you're seeing in the US um, and in Europe, this comes into place with essentially how we just have two different governments. So in the United States, one of the things that's being proposed with the Federal Cybersecurity Vulnerability Reduction Act, that's trying to say, oh, well, we want to make sure that federal contractors have a vulnerability reporting program in place, which is great. You know, everyone should have a vulnerability reporting process in place. And they're doing that in an attempt to align federal contractors, which, you know, are part of federal supply chains to make sure they're in line with, you know, best practices, miscompliance, stuff like that. 
um, to make sure, you know, vulnerabilities are patched accordingly. But where that differs currently in the United States is we kind of have two flows. You have your voluntary submissions by researchers, by companies to our national vulnerability database, um, our CVEs, which is managed by MITRE, where, you know, you have a, a list of partner companies who are on there with a vulnerability gets reported for their product. They're made aware, they'll patch it, it'll get a severity and a ranking and it'll go out into our CVE system. And that's all voluntary, which has its pros and its cons. You know, you're not necessarily dedicating resources to it. it you don't know how quick it's going to move, but, you know, at least it's going. Whereas the other part of the American system is you have your vulnerability equities process. And this is comprised of essentially about a dozen participants from, you know, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to the Treasury to State Department, Homeland Security. Um, the NSA is the Executive Secretariat for the VAP. And essentially what this does is if any of those dozen or so participants in those organizations find a vulnerability, it'll get brought to that small group where they have a review process to determine if that vulnerability will be patched or if it is in line with something that one of those members would find useful that they could then potentially weaponize or keep secret. And so that in itself is its own process where you have the government getting vulnerabilities, but only because they're sourced by these government members versus the public approach to voluntarily reporting something. And we don't have that bridge like you're seeing in China where because, you know, they're not democracy, but you have this whole authoritarian government, they can just say, no, everyone is reporting everything to the government. Um, we just, that's not how our government works here. Um, and so also in the European Union, you know, you're seeing proposals for the Cyber Resilience Act. And this is basically, you know, they're trying to make products more secure in the EU. The draft legislation has been out for about a year. But the problem with this is, you know, it's got this whole framework of are you publishing products that have, you know, any known vulnerabilities in them? Like they're trying to put the onus on the developer to do secure development, which is great. Um, and instead of necessarily the onus, the burden on the user uh, for potentially not knowing how to configure something securely and stuff like that, they want a lot of secure by default designs coming out, which are great. But the problem, you know, and kind of some points that are made, especially I like EFF's point for this is, they are putting a lot of pressure and potentially crippling open source developers by putting such severe requirements on people who are publishing open source stuff. And the problem with this is open source frameworks are spread out across our entire cybersecurity ecosystem. They're in everything. And so if you're going to start penalizing or fining or putting requirements on people who might just have developed a project and like barely maintain it, but it's in 80% of applications that we're all using at different organizations, they don't necessarily have the means to update, maintain and comply with it at this level. And so there's different scales of, are you an open source developer who receives maybe the occasional coffee contribution? Or are you an open source developer who gets multiple donations every month? Or are you like a for-profit corporation? And to what extent are you going to have to comply with this um, European Cyber Resilience Act? And so, but I think it all comes to show is different countries and regions are taking different approaches on how they want vulnerabilities reported on um, pushing companies to have vulnerability reporting processes, which is very important. But the extent to which you see different countries mandating or at least, or even having a strategy for the total collection of this, it's China's just taken it by a mile, um, just because they're in a different position to do so. They can mandate that everyone in their country operating there, doing business there, even if it's a foreign company, can submit this information. And then it raises concerns because, again, some of the software, you know, vulnerabilities being reported, they might be, again, for things that we don't really care about, if it's for like some obscure Chinese software that the majority of us don't use in the United States, like, what does it matter? 
But again, if they are having all these dedicated resources, um, and Dakota can probably get into the structure a bit more, but they have branches for five different types of vulnerabilities ranging from IoT to SCADA to cars to uh, web apps. Um, and then they have flowcharts of the orgs of support that go into supporting those uh, requirements and, and those developers and like patching those vulnerabilities. It's so well organized to an extent for essentially total government control of this vulnerability information that we can take notes from it, but it's not something you want to copy verbatim, but it's just an interesting thing to look at because again, you know, they have a history of cherry picking top vulnerabilities that were reported to them to use in offensive attacks by their APT groups. So that just kind of raises some concerns of where it stands out in, you know, the ecosystem if you're comparing across continents. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I want to come back later to this comparison between jurisdictions and different approaches. But, but for now, let's stay a little bit with this question of the, the process in China, right? So, so you describing your report kind of an alignment, and you mentioned this before about like a collect them all attitude, right? And that that is shared by policymakers and by corporate executives. Maybe I'll, I'll turn to you now, Dakota. And if you can talk a little bit more about the the government corporate relationship, you know, the public private partnership, you could say mm -hmm. on, on this issue. Let's start with the old system. So pre 2021, there are two databases and you're going to have to listen carefully because they are one letter different. There is a voluntary database under China CERT. So this organization is, I think it's officially a non-governmental organization. However, it's um, overseen by the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. China CERT has a database called CNVD. Sorry, Dakota, can you say what, what the CERT stands for, just in case? Yeah, anyone... absolutely. So, yeah. so CERT and China's Contacts is a, a computer emergency response team. Other countries also use the CERT acronym. However, they use different words there where I think it's uh, the U.S. uses a different set of words, but produces the same acronym. If effectively, it's a, a government agency that is meant to respond to critical uh, cybersecurity incidents. So this organization, their database is CNVD, and it is a voluntary disclosure database. It works with three other partnering databases. One is uh, Volbox, uh, which is a for-profit software vulnerability reporting platform. 
there is one run by uh, Shanghai Jiaotong University, uh, which has been tied to uh, military hacking campaigns. Uh, they have their own software vulnerability database. And uh, the third one is run by a cybersecurity company called Qianxin. Um, and that's basically observed vulnerabilities on their client systems and anyone else participating in that like Intel sharing group. So, so those three uh, non-government databases all feed into China Cert's CNVD uh, database. If you're a researcher in China, you can voluntarily submit information to CNVD. There's not an incentive system to do so, but that system has existed uh, for, for a good while prior to the 2021 regulations. Next to that system, the one, the one that sounds very similar, CNNVD, so two Ns, is run by the Ministry of State Security. The CNNVD database is the one that Christian referred to earlier uh, that had been um, collecting software vulnerabilities and then manipulating data about their uh, release and then holding on to critical software vulnerabilities for exploitation by offensive hacking teams. That is what an intelligence service is likely to do. And so it's not surprising that we uh, see them uh, exhibiting this behavior, at least until 2018. Um, that's when Recorded Future put out a report uh, detailing the data manipulation that was happening. In our report, we go back through the data that's currently available. Um, and one of the funny things is we find that the data on the website now begins the same month that Recorded Future published their reporting. So the intelligence service, when they went online, they wiped all of the data and they started fresh after the last Recorded Future report. Um, so the data on the CNNVD site doesn't tell us a whole, a whole lot. But uh, what we have found is a, a guidebook for companies that are partnering with this vulnerability database run by the intelligence services. They have requirements for the number of software vulnerability researchers that these companies should employ to be a partner of this database. They require that a specific number of vulnerabilities be submitted to the intelligence service to remain in good standing with this database. So these are cybersecurity companies that are ostensibly voluntarily uh, supporting the intelligence services offensive mission. We know that it's offensive, uh, A, because they're an intelligence service, and then B, the reporting data on their website actually doesn't attribute any new software vulnerabilities to the companies that are partnering with them. So I'll say that differently. If company ABC supports the CNNVD database, if you go through the intelligence services website, there is not any software vulnerabilities reported that are attributed to company ABC, even though their own regulations require that that company report 10, 15, 20 of these vulnerabilities. So we know that they're producing them and they're not putting them out, uh, which again, based on past behavior and their purpose points to offensive use. And this is all pre-2021 regulations where the government comes in and says, actually, if you find a vulnerability in a product inside the PRC, whether you're an individual, an organization, a company, you're now going to report it to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. So what they've effectively done is, is put their hands over the entire uh, ecosystem of researchers who are incentivized by uh, disclosure programs run by companies. So somebody else is paying for this research effectively, right? If, it's a, if a company has a software vulnerability disclosure program, oftentimes they remit payment for vulnerabilities that are discovered. And so the companies are incentivizing this research to make their own products more secure. 
And the government has inserted themselves into this research pipeline and given themselves access to the data that those researchers are producing. And so, you know, one of the obvious things to be concerned about is, okay, well, will the government do anything offensive with that data? One of the key findings of the report is that this new system under the MIIT, it shares that information with the CNVD. So again, this is the database run by China CERT. Um, it doesn't make any mention of the database run by the intelligence services. But if you go into the lists of organizations that are members of this voluntary CNVD database, you find a regional office of the intelligence services, uh, the, the MSS 13th Bureau. You find military contractors, uh, military SOEs. Uh, so a bunch of organizations that have offensive missions are getting access to the information that is now being mandatorily collected through this new MIIT database. And so it, there's a lot of content to visualize and imagine, but the short version is there used to be voluntary disclosure. You used to be able to support the intelligence services if you wanted to. And under the new system, if you're doing uh, research on software vulnerabilities in China, you are unfortunately and de facto supporting those offensive missions, even if you did not intend to. What happens if you don't comply? with this. You know, we know, for example, that, you know, after Alibaba Cloud reported the log4j vulnerability to Apache instead of the ministry, they were suspended, I think, from an information sharing partnership. Like, is is that standard? How how widespread is it? Are companies not complying at all? Is, is there any pushback, you know, now that there's been two years of practice of, of these regulations? There are two different uh, types of, of punishments can, that can be meted out, and they depend on who is violating the rules. The, the instance that does not apply to Alibaba is for network operators, and that's when they fail to patch or prevent um, a network product security uh, vulnerability that they are aware of, and, and they have not remediated it in the appropriate amount of time that's provided to them. Then they are uh, sanctioned under Article 59 of the cybersecurity law. So this is a separate law. The regulations from 2021 refer out to this law effectively and say, if you violate this, you're going to be punished in accordance with Article 59, which basically states that the company can be fined, I believe, anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 RMB per incident. And so per incident is kind of a question of like, is that per vulnerability or is that per device that's left vulnerable? The Punishment that was relevant for, you know, the Ali Cloud unit and the Log4j vulnerability is, according to the regulations, Article 14, uh, Ali Cloud was punished under Article 62 of the cybersecurity law of the PRC. Um, Article 62 gives the government the ability to fine uh, the company or organization between 10,000 and 100,000 RMB. And, and this is a direct quote, uh, the relevant competent department may order a temporary suspension of operations, a suspension of business for corrections, closing down of websites, cancellation of relevant operations permits, or cancellation of business licenses. Persons who are directly charged or other directly responsible personnel can be fined between 5,000 and 50,000 RMB. So Ali Cloud's suspension um, was actually from the MIIT's vulnerability database. Um, so if you look at what state media claims 
and I think it's China Daily who who has is the most authoritative mouthpiece on this on this issue. They are claiming that AliCloud was effectively suspended uh, from this MIIT data sharing platform, um, and we find that that's in line with what is outlined in Article sixty two of the cybersecurity law, where the relevant department, the, in this case being the MIIT, suspending AliCloud's participation in that system uh, for having violated its rules and regulations. There are more questions around corporate compliance in China by non-Chinese companies. Part of our report um, in one of the appendices, we find evidence of, of eight foreign firms that are complying with the ICS vulnerability database. But we actually think that there are a magnitude more and that the list of companies that included the foreign firms probably was not meant to have been published publicly. My guess is that you know the, the law is pretty clear. If you're doing business in China, then you are meant to comply with the system. I would be shocked if more companies were not. But the degree to which they're complying you know, is always fungible. We have accessed and reviewed the intake forms for the MIIT's database and its systems. And I'm not really sure if China is in the political position to force foreign firms to more thoroughly fill out the paperwork, as it were. You know, we, we don't have any direct evidence or have not had conversations with companies complying with these systems at scale. But I wouldn't be surprised if some folks were, you know, filling out the forms in an obligatory fashion um, and perhaps not providing all the details necessary that would facilitate, you know, offensive operations. So two years in, right, since since these regulations uh, came into force, could you talk a little bit about how effective they've actually been? Like, what are the indicators that they have accomplished what they were set out to do? I wouldn't necessarily, I I think my opinion on this is like, I don't know if we can, it's hard to quantify, you know, the impact that we've seen, because again, if it is going behind this wall of, you know, what is their pile of databases now? um, I think, you know, the impact, at least from a security researcher perspective, it's, I am more on edge, I feel, and more concerned about what do they know that we don't know necessarily. And again, I don't necessarily think we should try and backtrack to start by uncovering the unknown unknowns, but I'm more concerned about implementing a progressive move forward to efficiently look at all these vulnerabilities. Dakota, because I know you were you had some thoughts though on kind of what this looks like from a corporate perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So the question of what has it done, is it effective? There are a few different ways we can think about that. So the 2022 Microsoft Annual Defense Report attributed as likely the increase in Chinese uh, hacking groups' zero-day use to these new regulations. I'm interested to see what the annual threat reports for 2023 say from you know the big U.S. Uh, cybersecurity companies. Um, I'll be interested to see what trends that they observe, whether or not there's uh, still been an increase in zero-day exploitation by Chinese hacking groups. But you know, as we note in the report too, the number of vulnerabilities, at least for the ICS systems, that have been made public by the volunteer reporting database has effectively fallen to almost nothing. In, in the annual counts in the years before these 2021 regulations, so 2018, 2019, 2020, the CNVD, so the Voluntary System under China CERT, was reporting out you know, anywhere between 140 and 200 
ICS vulnerabilities a year. And since the publication of the 2021 regulations, the number of those ICS vulnerabilities that has been made public, I think in total since the, since the announcement um, is less than 25. And so there's been a dramatic drop off in what we know is being made available publicly. And we're also seeing reports from, you know, cybersecurity companies that see those numbers of exploitation increasing. So I'm interested to see what this year's annual reports say. I have a feeling, though, that they will continue to trend in the same direction. Hmm, that's, that's interesting. Kristen, you said that you're more interested in, you know, kind of a, a forward looking, what does this mean for the vulnerability ecosystem? And going back to what you were talking about before, about the differences in the approaches in different jurisdictions, you know, what's your sense of what that should look like? Or, or what are some of the questions that we should keep in mind as, you know, these different approaches converge? I think, um, you know, that CISA, for example, and proposed legislation in the United States is ta- it's taking some good steps forward in like small baby steps of, you know, if you're analyzing, you know, you're, if you're concerned about a federal environment um, and what your supply chain looks like there and wanting to secure that. Um, so, you know, the proposed legislation to make sure that any contractors working with the federal government have vulnerability reporting procedures in place, like that's very good because, you know, again, you can find vulnerabilities in any piece of like digital technology. Um, and so whether or not it's used in a federal environment, that's one thing to be concerned of. So I think that's a good first step. But then I also think it comes down to, you know, we have, there's been a lot of discussion around our vulnerability equities program. If it's, um, if it needs to be revised where it's at there, um, you know, I can't necessarily, won't want to speak necessarily to how the U.S. potentially is going about weaponizing our own stuff in our intelligence communities. But I do think there is an interesting incentivization gap to bridge between voluntary reporting and kind of government discoveries. So, you know, for example, when this research even kicked off a year and a half ago, I happened to find a vulnerability that was listed on the CNBD website, but it did not have an equivalent on the CBE US website. Um, and that was interesting because other vulnerabilities on these Chinese websites, they if they are known to us, they will list both numbers, their CBE identifier as well as their CNBD identifier. And so that kind of started the research for me of, okay, well, how many vulnerabilities does China know about that we don't know about, for example. So um, anything from as simple as, you know, setting up vulnerability disclosure programs to doing gap analysis to how can we incentivize our researchers and be more efficient with this? Because when I reported then that Chinese vulnerability to our CBE website, just to get it in the tracker, it took over a month for it to be placed and gone to the right person. And granted, it wasn't a high severity vuln, which I'm sure would be treated much more quickly, but because we have our own uh, hindrances essentially when it comes to reporting vulnerabilities in our system because we rely on if you find a vulnerability for x y or z software company that is part of that program there's a point of contact that will get funneled to um, and they'll take care of it but if you find a vulnerability for a software that the company that owns it is not part of our uh, cve system it just kind of goes into like this miscellaneous pile and they get to it when they get to it based on severity um, and so you know there's some enhancements we could make around that process there but overall, I think it leads to this really good point of, again, you know, we noted in our report and there's a graphic there, but if you just look at the flowchart structure of how, you know, they have it separated out from reporting around SCADA to ICS to, you know, critical infrastructure vulnerabilities and the teams in place to support when those vulnerabilities are reported, the teams in place to support the patching, the remediation, like the government there in China will 
help companies come up, you know, uh, with the engineering manpower if they don't necessarily have it to fix these things. And I'm not saying that's something we can necessarily do at scale instantly, but I think there's a lot of takeaways on how can we either incentivize our research communities? How can we close those knowledge gaps um, between various researchers, not only in the United States, but in different parts of the world? Because it's not just China that had their own CNVD or CNNVDs. Um, you know, Russia has their own vulnerability system. South Korea has a vulnerability reporting system. So um, kind of moving forward, yes, you should take stock of where you think your most critical vulnerabilities or risks might come from based on your supply chain or who you work with most, or, you know, just where your business you're protecting is, you know, based out of. But I think there's a lot of progress that can be made moving forward and people are slowly, and I think baby steps are the right way to do it, um, set up small reporting programs, but there's also incentivization and other support mechanisms that governments can put in place without necessarily overstepping and taking this full control over the entire ecosystem. Dakota, basically the same question back to you as well. Hmm. You know, as I, as I reflect on how China's system is designed in its intent, I can't look away from the fact that it, it should not be replicated in the United States. And I, and I really want to say that expressly, part of China's vulnerability collection system also collects incident reports. And so the companies who are observing these vulnerabilities being exploited or they're finding these software vulnerabilities as, as part of their research, what have you, the database under the MIIT also accepts and, and the law encourages and requires these companies to provide incident reports. And so if your client is subject to a cyber attack, these companies are meant to fill out extensive paperwork about what happened, what was exploited, what the tools were, when it happened, you know, what data was exposed or taken, if there was ransomware, et cetera. And it's a very detailed uh, system for collecting this information. And, you know, if you're China, it's um, maybe easy to understand why the government would want to collate all this information. But, you know, it, it's an apparent uh, intelligence target for foreign governments if you're targeting China. You have this database that has a bunch of vulnerabilities in it. That's one reason to get access already. The second is um, it can provide a lot of counterintelligence value. If you have a database full of what cybersecurity companies are uh, responding to, tracking, and aware of, you, if you had access to this, would be able to know which of your operations they are aware of, which of them they are not aware of, what they're tracking and not tracking, what their capabilities are, and what uh, what exposure you have effectively. So China has kind of inadvertently made uh, a system that is also a really good intelligence target uh, for foreign governments. Um, and, and I don't think we should uh, walk past something that is, is so blatantly a mistake uh, of, their, of their approach. Yeah, and that, that final point reminds me of some of the concerns that a letter penned by a group of cybersecurity experts sent to the European Commission earlier this month uh, about the the Cyber Resilience Act's vulnerability disclosure provisions, where basically they were saying that there are risks concerning the, the misuse for intelligence and surveillance, exposure to malicious actors, the potential chilling effect on, on good faith researchers. You know, like, do you think that these concerns apply as well to, to the concerns that you highlight in your report? My opinion is that, you know, it, it is very easy 
to look at China and look at policies that are in place and go, see, but they're, they, they are doing something about it and we're not. And the beauty of a lot of democratic systems is that we are less centralized. We have uh, many, many inputs and many layers to the administration of our society, not just the government. And one of the benefits of having a decentralized system is that you cannot just uh, you know, pop one database or one website and get access to the entire country's knowledge about software vulnerabilities or cyber incidents. So having not read the, the letter that was provided to the EU, you know, based on the way that you summarize it, I can say that I empathize uh, with those people's opinions. Yeah, and I agree with Dakota on that. But again, yeah, you know, I haven't read that letter either. But I do think, you know, I am always a proponent of, I don't want to over-regulate on this. And I know that it can be very difficult, especially in the cybersecurity realm to come up with good regulation. Um, But I think right now, what I'm just hoping for is more of awareness and conversations around this topic than necessarily concrete regulation coming out of it because i can completely see their point being like you know it can good faith security research and mandating these uh disclosures in timely manners can have negative impacts you know depending on resources and stuff like that but yeah i think it's just a broader conversation and connecting the right people together to have these talks so, so I think that that's actually a, a very nice point to start wrapping up the conversation. But before we do, I, I do want to give you the opportunity to, you know, if you have any last remarks, any final thoughts, if you want to bring up a point that you wish we had discussed, but we didn't, you know, the floor, the floor is yours. Yeah, I think the, the only thing that I would note, maybe that we haven't gotten to, to chat about is that part of part of the vulnerability database is, or part of the intake form, rather does allow for people submitting information to include uh, proof of concept code for exploitation. So, you know, the thing that can demonstrate that a vulnerability exists, um, the same thing that gets posted on GitHub and sometimes weaponized by cyber criminal groups, that same proof of concept code is a thing that the Chinese government is interested in having you submit if you have it. And I think as much as, as much as the public information about this system is improving the you know, software and hardware security of products that are bought and sold in China, it just it, it reeks of having uh, you know, second order impact and, and actual you know, other motivations behind the collection of, of these vulnerabilities. Okay, well, we have a topic for a further conversation, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, so Dakota, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And I would encourage anyone in the audience who wants to learn more to go read your report, which is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Isabel Kirby McGowan of Coat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan.
As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.